Today I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, as the second part of this sermon that's based upon this particular paragraph. Now hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful encouragement and instruction and even warning that since we have this great confidence in the blood of Christ and that we have this great priest in Jesus Christ, May it be that we would hear this teaching, this admonishment, and this warning to be faithful, to do these things that we have been called to do, to draw near to you, to hold fast our confession, and that we would stir each other up with love and encouragement, and that we would do this as we anticipate your return, both with confidence and fear at the same time, and with hope that your kingdom would grow in our lives, and in the lives that we touch. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And once again, I'm always amazed to watch the Lord and what He is doing with multiple parts of life that seem to funnel down to certain subjects. And I don't know if when you're reading the Word of God or if you're hearing particular messages that it just seems to intensify your um, sensitivity to it, but it just sometimes seems that there just seems to be a true, a plan of how God brings things together. I know that two Saturdays ago, that when Maharus led us in our men's study, we were talking about the discipline of the church and being a part of the church and how that was connected to where we were in this particular passage in Hebrews. And then there have been multiple messages and articles that are talking a lot about the church. And I think in some respects, it's not just that it's you know, God ordaining something in light of what we're doing here in our preaching series, but that we are in a time where the question is, what is church and why is church necessary and is church necessary and what's going on in the church of Jesus Christ today. And so this particular passage, which has been quoted a lot, I know since 2020, when the COVID epidemic came, it is something that has drawn us back together. And I hope that last week that you all have heard that our number one confidence is the blood of Christ and that it's 
not the church that we're looking for to get our salvation, but that the church is built because of the blood of Christ. And that if we have a hope in the blood of Christ, we should also be very much interwoven with the church. And so it seems that for God's people that the message needs to be heard, not just for our congregation and not just for our nation, but for the world. It has always been a message that to come to Christ, we should be coming together as his body and as his bride. Just as a quick recap, last Sunday, my two points, which are very clear points, I think, in this particular paragraph. Uh, It's interesting, both Maharus and I both have been involved in expository preaching seminars, and he went through a multiple-day thing, and he went through a three-day thing in in, um, Washington, and then I went just yesterday on a three-hour seminar on expository preaching, and... I would say that possibly, and there's a a lot of passages that might fit this particular mold, but this is a a softball passage when it comes to creating an outline. Because you have for yourself these two primary points of what we have in Christ, and then we have this application that's right after that. Um, I know that Steve Lawson is uh, an instructor that was at the place where Maharus was, and and the guy that was doing the instruction yesterday for me referenced Steve Lawson the whole time, and he was saying that if you don't have application in a sermon, then you, I can't remember how he phrased it, but basically you don't have a sermon, that it's just basically a lecture, that it's just basically data, a data download, I think was the terminology, I was trying to to pull it back into my mind, that it's just basically data download. That it's information for you. But this passage gives a very clear outline of saying, let us, because we have this confidence, because we have this great priest, let us do these things. And there's actually three points of application going on in this particular sermon by the writer to the Hebrews. And last week I talked about not so much the, just the data download of what we had in Christ, but what, how we need to make this our confidence. That if, if our confidence is in anything else other than the blood of Jesus, then we can see why we maybe do not any longer have confidence in his church, in the means of his church. If we do not see ourselves identified as the house of God who has this great high priest over us, and we don't see the importance of our great high priest, then we're not going to really understand and have a desire to be amongst the house of God and to be operating and acting like the house of God. And so the admonishment there and the application there is that we would, one, question ourselves to, is the blood of Christ our number one primary hope? And is the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, Our primary identity, because it is in the church of Jesus Christ, that identity is the only identity that you will have eternally as a people. You might be designated as a brother in the church or a sister in the church. But other than that, there is no other distinction that will be there for us because we will ultimately have the same position of brothers in Christ, meaning that we receive the full inheritance of the kingdom, and we are the church. The Bible is very clear that the distinctions are fading away, that the only distinctions that we have today, as whether it's pastor or employee or employer 
or son or daughter, husband and wife, is only a temporary identity that is for the purposes of discipling us as the body of Christ. Those things will fade. I know that's a hard thing. I've mentioned this many times before for Jennifer to, for, for us to talk about. She doesn't like the idea that, that husband and wife will not be our primary title anymore in our relationship. She is growing more and more as my sister in Christ. And I'm hopefully growing more and more as her brother in Christ. And that we are becoming more and more one in that respect than anything else. Is that your identity? Well, if today, if that confidence is yours, if you have that confidence in the blood of Christ, it should create a boldness. That's what that word confidence, if you remember from last week, that it is a trust with boldness. It is a fire within us that stirs us up because we have this new and living way in Christ that he opened up with his flesh to be able to be with God. And because of that, we can back up and look at verse 18 that precedes this. It says, and where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The center point thing that should give us great excitement is that we now have this forgiveness of our sins. That's something that we should be aware of. And it should be the thing that is daunting to us. But because of what Christ has done in his flesh, we now are able to have access to God. So are you stirred up? And that's a serious question. Because I think in this day and age, we have so many distractions. We want to say that, yes, I trust in Jesus Christ and I hope in him. But sometimes it's hard to be stirred up about it. Because we're, we're like the, the dog in the movie Up. We're, we're like, everything's a little squirrel. Like squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> we're distracted by so many things that we have a hard time staying straight to what is actually our confidence and hope. So we do need to continue to pray that God would help stir us up. But when we understand that reality and when we are at a place where we are able to understand that our identity is in the church, our identity in Christ is with the church, we have these three things here in this passage that are very clear based upon, and it's very important to understand what it's saying. It says, let us which is a plural identification of who this is to. It doesn't say just let you. It says let us. We're coming together in this particular application of this reality of our great confidence and our great hope in our high priest. The first one is let us draw near. Here we see that we are to draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What we see here is that we are to draw near namely to truth, to the truth of what's in our heart and the truth and the reality that inside of this we see that ultimately there is this call to repentance because when we go to our hearts, We see that they are vile, so we have to repent. But when we understand the proclamation of the gospel, we have this full assurance of faith that we are forgiven. So we have both this posture of repentance, like was mentioned 
earlier by Maharus, it's a good thing to be in that place because it is a good thing for us to see how much grace we have been given in Jesus Christ. So it's truth. It's both the truth of who we are and more so the truth of who God is and that our hearts are being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And not just our hearts, but our whole lives. Our bodies being washed by God. Secondly, we are to hold fast to this confession of our hope with faithfulness. Because He is faithful, because He has done this, we are to hold fast to what we say is the Word of God without wavering. There is this call for us not only to enter into the Gospel, but to live it out. That we would have this confidence in what God is teaching us in His Word. That we would obey Him. Because He is faithful, because of what he has done. Again, I love how the writer to the Hebrews has done this. He's quickly combined this. It's not that we are to do this without wavering because we have to earn our salvation, but because the one who has promised is faithful. Because Jesus is faithful, we hold on to that confession in obedience to him. Our obedience flows and comes from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then here's where it hits home to where we're seeing each other. That we are called because of these things. And because it's kind of that they're interwoven together. It's not like it's just you do this and you do this and you do this. It's more like you do all of these things. We're doing them all at the same time. That we would stir each other up. That we would take that stirring, that boldness and that confidence that the Lord has placed in us. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it would overflow with love and service of good works to each other. And that we would come together. Just so simply that we would be together. That we would walk together. This word that we have here for good works encompasses so much that the love and good works that we can see is ultimately the service to each other. And we know that worship of God is service. And when we worship God, we also serve His people. And there should be an encouragement from that. That's one of the things that's kind of convicting for me sometimes. I I spend a lot of time having to correct family and and I preach and and... I was listening to my instructor yesterday, and, and he was talking about a guy that was uh, evaluating one of his um, instructors, in, I guess in seminary, and he did a video of him preaching this sermon, and he said, uh, he gave the video to him, and he said, well, tell me what you see right off the bat that you, need, that you think I need to change, and, and he says, did I ever tell you you have a really nice smile? That's what the instructor told him, and he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like... You have a really nice smile. Now that I'm seeing you face to face, you have a, I notice you have a really nice smile. And, um, and he was thinking, why is, what, why is this guy talking to me last night? And he said, you ought to use it because you didn't use it in your sermon. <laughs> you didn't smile. And you need to use a body language that goes in there. You're, you're, even though you are admonishing people, you should also, it should be an encouragement. The gospel has this call to repentance, but this assurance of his faith and his grace. And I sometimes wonder if my display and proclamation of the word of God to my home and to others, if it is encouraging or if it's dis- 
left with discouragement. So yes, we come here as sinners to be called to repentance, but our time together in this love should be a refreshment. It should be a rest. It should be an encouragement to one another. And it should be one that we do with a lot of zeal. Because it says here at the end of this particular paragraph that we should do this even more as you see the day drawing near. We are in that time of the day. That means we are at the end. Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has raised. He is reigning. And it says now he's going to come back. We're on the tail end of that end. We don't know when that end is going to happen. But there should be this sense of urgency to encourage people in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the hope of Jesus Christ, that that eternal identity that we have in Christ would be shared amongst others, that they would be vessels of mercy versus vessels of wrath, and that we would encourage one another to stay firm and hold fast that confession as we walk together, that they would not waver and walk away, but they would hold on tightly I thought of an illustration here that you might find to be overly simplistic, but when I was thinking about these three particular points that the writer to the Hebrews did here, I I guess because I actually cooked a meal on Friday, I don't do a lot of cooking, I do a lot of grilling, but this time I actually did real cooking. I looked up a recipe and I got some the food from the grocery store and I had to chop things up and I had to measure things and I had to multiply the recipe based upon the size of our home. And then I had some help with the cooking thanks to Alethe on some things, but I, I had to do mostly the whole thing. And, and I looked at this particular three points of this one, let us draw near with truth and then to hold fast this confession without wavering and then to stir up one another in love. I see is kind of like cooking a feast that to start to, to prepare a feast, you need to have food. Okay, that's, that's important. <laughs> you don't want to... I, I didn't go to the hardware store um, with my recipe. Um, I went to a grocery store. And it seems pretty, seems pretty basic. Of course, you need to have food. But the problem, and like I highlighted last week, a lot of people have as their hope and their confidence things that are not sustaining. In fact, their hope and their confidence are in things that will lead to death. If I mixed up some paint or some weed killer in that feast, it will lead to death. And the Bible teaches us that there are things that are alluring to us that might even be temporarily enjoyable that will lead to death. But our confidence is to be in the blood of Jesus Christ. That should be our primary thing. It must be based upon truth. The truth of what is the reality of what all of this is about in the scripture, what all of creation is about. There are so many things, so many things that are counterfeit that will not bring us that life. So you've got to start with food. You've got to start with truth. You've got to start with the gospel of repentance and faith. You must start with Jesus Christ. And then secondly, it needs to be rightly mixed. It needs to be applied correctly. It can really go off. If you get bits and pieces, the Bible is full of lots of truth. There's a lot in here. But we know that it's a very dangerous thing to just pick different things outside of the context. 
I have a variety of different friends that have different beliefs about things. And, and we can throw scripture at each other all the time. We can throw bits and pieces of food at each other, but it's not going to make a sustainable meal. And it can actually be quite dangerous and actually could kill somebody if you take all of these things that might be food in some context. But if you don't have the right mixture in the right context, it could bring forth death. I heard about a, a guy in Alaska that was found dead. He was one of those kind of people that wants to live in the wild, and, and he was just living in the middle of nowhere. And when they found him dead, he had, this, um, he had certain seeds inside of his body, and he was just living off of the things that were growing in the wild. And there was a big debate about whether the thing that he ate is what killed him. Because I couldn't figure, they didn't have, he didn't have bear marks or anything on him. He just, he died. And, they, and there was, some people were saying it was this particular seed and it was a kind of potato. And some people said, well, that's poisonous. And some people said, no, it's not poisonous. See, like, I'll eat one and you're fine. I'm fine. I'm not going to die. But the context of the situation is that if you are starving and you have a high concentration of those particular potato seeds, it becomes toxic. And they weren't putting it into the context. Because people were like, look, I can eat one and I'm not dead. I can eat one, I'm not dead. Well, if you are living on the land <laughs> in the middle of Alaska and you're famished and you're eating a lot of those, your chemical reaction will become toxic. And so you must mix it up. Here we have this calling to hold fast the confession of our hope with faithfulness. That we are to take these realities of the gospel and it should be applicable in our life according to what he has given us in his word. And I'm going to back that up of why I'm coming to this conclusion because we'll see in Hebrews chapter 4, which is really just a mirror of Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. And it highlights the necessity of being in the word of God to have this contextual life of living out the gospel according to his will. It must be rightly applied in our lives. We must be living it consistently. It's not just a matter of, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but it should have an impact. And it should be applied contextually to what the Lord has called us. Because He is faithful, we too should be faithful to what He has given us in His Word. And then lastly, it needs to nourish it needs to feed. It needs to have an impact. It's a necessity that, you know, I can take all of the groceries, I can get all of the, the truth, and I can try to live it all out and lay it all out the right way and have all of my, my doctrine in play and have the recipe components all in place. But it should have an impact. It should, have a, it should feed people. It should nourish people. You should present it. You should live it out. You should serve it. You should serve others with it. This call to stir up one another in love and service is to take this reality in our walking with Christ and then to pour it into others. And, it, and it's not possible to actually have a feast. It's not possible for these things to be truly food unless it's actually been eaten and being participated in together. And it's, it's such a crucial...
component that if we do not do this, if we do not take this truth and we take these doctrines and we take this life of working with, walking with God, and if we do not apply it to the body of Christ, there will be starvation. And people will die. The church will be weakened. And we have the confidence that the Bible tells us that the church will never die because of his strength. But he desires and calls us to be the avenue in which this is sustained, that he wants to live in us by word and spirit to feed one another. It must nourish each other. And it's so crucial that we do this, that we come together in worship and service because he is returning. We want people to be ready. We want them to be fed and nourished and to be ready for his return. And that means for those who are already claiming his name and for those particularly who are not claiming his name, that we must reach out to those people and feed them the gospel of Jesus Christ. To go real quickly here, like I was saying, that I see these things to be interwoven in that way because Hebrews chapter 4 which I told you when I was preaching through Hebrews chapter 4, is a bit of an outline of the whole book in many different ways. That The things there was a, a sermon-esque type outline that we need to let us do this, let us do this. Because of these realities, it was the application component really for the whole book. And remembering that the Christians, the Hebrew Christians, were under a time of persecution and under a time of suffering, And under a time of attack in many different ways, that this was a way to encourage them to hold fast. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm just real quickly, I'm just going to highlight, I'm not going to read all of chapter 4. But if you look in verse 1, we see that, therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4 and all the let us's, it's an inversion order of what we see in 19 through 25 in chapter 10. Because if you look in chapter 10, 19 through 25, it ends with this, really this threat or this warning, this fear, because God is returning, we need to do these things. And here in Hebrews 4, it says, let us fear that some of us have failed to reach this rest, that they have not entered into this rest. And so it provokes in an inversion way. It's like because of God's return, let us fear and let us now enter into his rest. And so what we see in 19 through 25 of chapter 10, there's this interesting call for us to have confidence and fear. That we're to have confidence in Jesus Christ and that we are to fear that we don't have confidence in Jesus Christ. And that we're not living it out. And so it's, 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 it's given it to us both at the same time. Yes, because of what Jesus has done, we can enter in to the Holy of Holies and dwell with God. We have identifiably already entered into the Holy of Holies because Christ is there now. But because he's returning and because of this particular age, he is drawing his people to him. Let us with fear hold fast to this and to encourage one another to hold tightly. And then you see in verse 11, it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is this call of obedience, being consistent, 
applying the truth of God contextually by living obediently. Because it says right after that in verse 11, for the word of God is a living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. It's merging this life of obedience by this life of following God's word. That our life of entering into his rest is holding tight consistently what he has instructed us in his word. In verse 14, we see the same exact words. Let us hold fast our confession. I'm kind of, I think 11 and 14 are kind of merged together. Again, we're holding our fast our confession that this word of God is highlighting this high priest. That is our confession that because of what Jesus has done and because he is faithful, therefore we should be faithful in obeying his word now that we have been freed from our captivity of disobedience. And in verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you can see, if you look at it and go back and read that, and you'll see it's basically the let us is inverted in order, but still pointing ultimately to the same hope. That it's merging all of this together because of what Christ has done. There should be this sense of urgency. There should be this great confidence. There should be this consistent obedience to his word. And that stirring up of that reality should cause us to encourage one another in that reality of the gospel and truth. The book that I have out in the back, and I encourage everyone, if you haven't had a chance to read this, I, I know that for a lot of people who, when you join, I, you have to read this little booklet. It's right outside there, and it says, Why Bother With Church? And it's a, um, a really good summary of what is the need, why, we, why the Bible teaches us that the church is necessary. And inside of that, I don't know if it's in the second chapter, uh, the author, Sam Albury, he, um, I want to read a, a section of this because I think this is where we are today. And so when we think about this particular passage and, and why it's important for us to see this, this is where we are today. And the, the book was written quite a while back, and we're still resonating in this and um, still dealing with it probably even more now than than we were at the time that this was written. He says, one of the features of the Western culture today is individualism. Back in the 17th century, when the philosopher René Descartes attempted to begin a defense of God with the words, I think, therefore I am, he kicked off something of a trend, starting the answer to life's questions with I, meaning us, I am. Nowadays, we tend to think that the basic unit of reality is me. Everything else is defined in relation to me. And technology has accelerated this trend. Our entertainment, communication, books, hobbies, finance, work, and lifestyle are more and more personalized. A previous generation would have gathered to watch TV. The generation before that would have gathered to listen to the radio But now we can do either of these things pretty much anywhere, alone. None of this makes such technology a bad thing, of course. I'm writing this on a laptop, drawing notes on my smartphone. 
But it's all much in a very individualized way. But there's a great danger that we end up approaching the Christian life with a similar mindset. After all, we can get regular podcasts of the best Bible teaching out there. We can download the latest and best worship music. We can pray wherever we are. I can have church while lying in bed on Sunday morning. Why bother getting up and hauling myself down the road to a church where neither the teaching nor music, no offense, will be as good? Can I just have Jesus? Doesn't Christianity, does Christianity have to come with Christians? When we think about what we would like to see our lives like, we would like it to be more peaceful. We would like for it to have serenity. You know, the Lord obviously gave me a big family, and and I'm thankful I have this office now. I can come and I can actually prepare a sermon in quietness. And it's like, wouldn't it just be nice just to sit there and just think about the ponderings of the wonders of God all the time? Well, no. That would be a very empty life. It's one reason why I'm very much not, I don't think the Bible teaches us to be monks that we live, I was going to say monastic lives or monastic, that's the word, monastic. We're not called to live monastic lives. I mean, I think it's okay to have monastic moments. Jesus took walks on the mountain to pray alone. You know, it's good to go on vacation. It was a good rest, right? (laughs) We need to have rest. The Lord's all about us wanting, he wants us to be able to be replenished and refurbished. But we also know that God said that he did not take us out of the world. But that we have a purpose in being in the world. He put us together. He's actually calling us together. Sam Albury says, number one, you can't come to Christ without coming to his people. Now, he makes in other parts of the book, he's not saying that you cannot become a Christian without the church. That it would be a, most definitely a no answer saying, do I have to go to church to become a Christian? No, to become a Christian, you just have to repent and believe and hope in Jesus Christ alone in his work. It doesn't require the church for one to become a Christian. But can you continue to walk and come to Jesus without coming to his people. And he highlights and he points out different passages, some that I'll go over in a moment, that no, you cannot. Number two, you can't serve Christ without serving his people. That's why you can't live a monastic life and just live alone and and meditate upon the goodness of the Lord. We are called to be in the lives of one another. Sometimes in very mundane places of just being in our families' lives and serving our families. And, and here we see very clearly in his word to be amongst his church. Everything that we see defined about the beginnings and the continuation of the church is in plural. It's not saying we don't have individual lives with Christ, but those individual lives are parts in members of the whole. We've already read that today in our scripture reading. When we go to Acts 2, which is the very beginning of the church, when the Spirit was being poured out, which is the initiation of the Christian church, it says all who believed were together. 
They were together. All the believers were together. And they had all things in common. And then when you look at the breakdown of what they were called to do, they were to be devoted to the teaching of the word. The breaking of bread and prayers. And to be sharing with one another. Wherever the need was. To be helping one another. And it says there that the Lord added to their number day by day. I would argue that the greatest evangelistic strategy is to be a faithful church. It's not some kind of how can we trick people into coming into the doors by maybe giving them some kind of prize. Like you can get a brand new car whenever we get the hundredth person into the door. No, it's to be faithful. It says the Lord added to their number day by day. Now, it doesn't say that he's guaranteeing that it's going to be 3,000 people if we just do this formula. It's the Lord will bring the harvest as he desires in his own plan. When we think that Acts is the initiation of the church, and I would argue that you go all the way into the Old Covenant, the church is all of God's people, because I think that's what's being highlighted when we see that we're all offspring of Abraham. But here in the New Covenant church, the, the beginning is in Acts. When Jesus is seated at the right hand, and then he has poured out his spirit upon his people, he initiates that. And then from there we have the epistles. And it describes what the life of living a Christian is like. And after it talks about the great realities of what we have in Christ, it brings it down to the church and to the families that are inside of the church and into the employment workings of people's lives on the day by day. But it goes from what is in this great reality in heaven to the great assembly of his people. In Galatians chapter 3 Verses 26 through 29, it says, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons, all are sons of God. Highlighting again that we have this inheritance, that we have this position of being the sons of God. But then it says, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's talking about how all of these sons of God, all of these people who now have this great inheritance because of Christ, are one in Christ Jesus. Not just separated little increments here and there. Romans chapter 12. Again, a letter written to the Christians in Rome. It says in verse 3, it says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And then a little further, it says, For as in one body we have member, many members. Knox read that for us this morning. That if we are in Christ and we have this grace, we are one together. We are different members of the body. We don't all have the same function, it says. We are all one in Christ. And in in the passage that he read, it talks about how there were different giftings. And how it's a necessity that we need these different parts. And God made it very clear for us by describing it like the body. That we need... Different hands and different feet. We need the neck. We need different parts of the body. You know, this church is, has a lot of people who, are, who deal with medical things. And they understand the necessity of the different parts of the body. That's how God describes the necessity of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5. 
And I think this is what I'm going to read a little bit more in full from 16 through 21 of chapter 5. When we think about this, this warning to us as this day is drawing near and we think about the condition of the church. I sent out last week in my worship notes a podcast where Kevin Swanson um, is reporting from statistics that we have lost 10 million church members since 2020. In three years, the evangelical church or the, the Christian church, I wouldn't say they're all evangelical because it would be encompassing a lot of different components of churches that are called themselves Christians. 10 million people have ceased to assemble together. And he even says in that it could actually be 18 million when you consider another age group and demographic. That's a huge hit. We all knew that in 2020 something was going on in our culture. And I believe that most of it was very spiritual. It was a spiritual attack, but also maybe a spiritual cleansing upon the church. Ephesians 5, 16 through 21, it says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Again, we've been in this zone for quite some time for the last 2,000 years. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks and always, or giving thanks always and for everything to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. So when we think about this age, which is definitely an intensification, at least in our particular place. I mean, I think a lot of this is somewhat American culture, but it is also world culture. And it is in the time that we'll continue to have until his return. That we are not to be foolish by letting ourselves being distracted by whatever is going to feed our appetites. And to be having our minds basically drunk with all kinds of shiny things. But that we're to be filled with the Spirit. And when we're, if we're filled with the Spirit, we need to be, what well, one together, we're to be together singing together. Praising the Lord. Worshiping the Lord together. Making melody to the Lord with our heart. Giving thanks to Him. We should be a thankful people. There should be a sentiment amongst this church and amongst my family and amongst this pastor and this Christian and this man that we, I'm a very thankful. We should be thankful people. People should, when they try to describe who we are, there should be two primary components that are fruits of what the Spirit has done. We should be humble and grateful people. If people encounter us, and then they encounter us over and over again, and somebody says, can you describe them? They may not say this out loud, but if they are thinking... Man, that person sure does complain a lot. <laughs> He's always whining. There could be certain things in their life that need to be addressed that would put them in that particular place. There may be certain emotional and psychological things that may need to be dealt with. But generally, we should be very thankful people. But then it says here that we should be submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. When we look at all these different passages together, we're, we'll see that it's, 
necessary that there is actually a particular people that we're talking about. I'm not just submitting myself to just anyone who calls themselves a Christian in Alabama or in California or in Oregon. I don't know who these people are. There is a, an association that you're dealing and walking with a particular person. And you're coming together and singing together with particular people. And I'll go further with some passages that highlight it even more, that there should be a particularity to that. And when we look at the whole New Testament, there were these letters to particular churches, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Colossae, you know, on and on and on. There were particular groups of people that interacted with each other, that their families were connected to each other, their work in their daily lives, in their weekly worship, in their daily worship even, as we see in Acts 2 were with people that they knew and that were interconnected with. We'll see later on in Hebrews chapter 13 that it even says to obey your leaders and to submit to them. Does that mean you're to to listen to every Christian leader that's out there? Every instructor that's out there? That anyone who teaches the Bible, you just you gotta listen to all of them? No, it says your leaders. Again, this particularization, people have to know you. When you see that, when we see later on in the Bible, when it has the calling of leaders, of elders and deacons, that you need to have, they need to have a good reputation among you. You've got to know who they are. You've got to be in their lives. And you're the one who calls them. You recognize their walk with God. That is a part of their qualification. If they don't have a good reputation amongst a particular people, they're not able to be called. They're not just self-called. God works through his people, a particular people. Then we begin to see how it's shaping that we need to have this connection with particular churches and membership and connected to each other because we're members of one body, members of one another. In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 I'll just kind of highlight a few things. It says bearing with one another. How do we bear with each other if we don't know each other and know what's going on with each other? That we are called to put on this kindness and compassionate and humility and meekness and patience to each other. Well, that's because that we're close enough to each other to lose our patience with each other. We're close enough to each other to become non-compassionate and not to be meek. And maybe to be arrogant against each other. So God calls us in this close connection relationship to bear with one another. And then it says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So if you think about how that outline of let us, let us, let us, let us, let us with confidence draw near because of the blood of Christ. By the time we get all the way to the end of that list, let us stir one another up. Basically, it's giving us many opportunities to apply the gospel by forgiving each other, by remembering our great confidence that we have the blood of Christ covering us. It's all about the gospel. It's all about living it out faithfully in our own personal lives and how it flows out to the people in the church. And there in Colossians 3, it reminds us, indeed, you were called in one body. If Christ is ruling in your hearts, we should be also seeing that played out together. 
Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If you belong to Jesus and you seek to serve Jesus, you must serve not just people, not just the people you like in the church, but even the least of these who are your brothers. This means that we're going to have to strive. We're going to have to bear patiently and compassionately. We're going to have to also remember that the Lord has forgiven us. It all centers in the work that he has done. It all centers in the blood of Christ. It all comes back to that great confidence that we have. But because this one who reigns at the right hand of the Father is returning, we need to do this with urgency. This is a time, even more now in this age, we need it. It is faltering. We can either be those who falter, or we can be those who are trying to rescue those who are faltering. Those are our two particular callings, but we don't get to sit on the bench. We can sit in the pew for a little while, (laughs) but we need to get up. We need to get into each other's lives. We need to cross over to different aisles and ask each other what we can do to pray and to serve to build each other up, bearing one another, forgiving one another, for the Lord has forgiven you. Let us pray.